Welcome back to March Mad Men. Brace yourselves, dear listeners, for the end of our post-mortem on the scariest flick to land on our slab this season. Terrified, a.k.a. Aterados. Hope you don't have a condition. Enjoy. Okay, well, we had a little break there, and I poured myself a Casamigos Mezcal in a skull-shaped shot glass, which I thought was appropriate. And I have a chaser on deck, a hazy little thing, IPA. Gentlemen, um, what's your beverage situation right now? I am thrilled to be drinking a uh, bourbon barrel quad from uh, Boulevard that is just one of my favorite beers in the world, and I can almost never find it. So uh, I'm I'm glad to have it in my fridge and now in my glass. Oh, I am very jealous of both you guys. The 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 tequila maybe not so much, but hazy little thing is a is a great like off the shelf hazy. And uh, Vic, that bourbon barrel aged quad is an awesome beer. I'm continuing my run. I'm still starting out with white wine. Coming fresh off dinner, guys. I'm feeling very sophisticated tonight. But don't worry, I'll I'll switch gears up in a little bit. I'll make sure that we have a good third act. Yes, every movie requires a good third act. No doubt about it. And I think Terrified has one. Um, Let's put it that way. But we're not quite there. Let's pick it back up. I think uh, we come out of the timeline with the the neighbor kid and the the dead body in the freezer and all that good stuff back to the three investigators interviewing Juan in jail. And they present him with some paperwork that he needs to sign in order to grant them access to his home so they can research the case further. Apparently he's the last uh, neighbor or stakeholder to give the necessary authorization. I was a little confused by the paperwork. Can't he just give them his keys? (laughs) <laughs> yeah, I, I didn't know there were, like need, you needed a legal contract to let some people into your house for a few minutes or an hour or whatever. I really like I, like I really poured over that for a while. Again, I was pretty high. Uh but I really poured over the necessity of the paperwork and I wondered like is that I, I don't know, like what was the narrative point of that, I guess. But I maybe maybe it's a maybe it's a legitimate legal thing in Argentina. I don't know, but I really did I was like why do they why do they need a document to go? It's not like they have to show it to anybody. <laughs> I think I think that given the end result of, of what happens in his uh, in his unit, that it's it's fair. Like maybe maybe they've seen this happen before, and they're like, "Look, someone's going to sue us, and we're going to have to pay for their set of of silverware that is now stained with blood and, uh, and impaled through the cabinet street." And you know, we we just want to avoid that, and like. It, Agreed ahead of time that no one's at fault if anything happens. Good point. You're right. The release that does make sense. They're, they're just covering the rest. These are responsible investigators. I don't know what the laws are in Argentina, you know, but yeah, cover my ass is always a good policy. Yeah. Uh, hey guys, uh, my cat just puked on the carpet, so give me a second. <laughs> ah. Wait, is this a bit? No. <laughs> I, wish it, I wish it was. Well. She went right off my lap and puked on the carpet. So, And I remembered that I didn't take the water bottle away from the bunny. So I'm sorry, guys. Just give me one sec. All right. Well, I put out that fire. Basically, the cat did not chew any of her food. It was all like looked like I, it was when I put it in her dish 20 minutes ago. So, yeah, once uh, once all those papers are, are signed on the dotted line and the... 
I's are dotted and the T's are crossed. Juan asks what they mean to do in his home, and they tell him they're going to be splitting up to hold down the fort at the three haunted houses. And in terms of uh, running time, this is just past the halfway point of the movie, but it's definitely a critical gear shift and escalation of the plot. I, I don't know about you guys, but I really like stories that have a earlier uh, in the film a long timeline, jumping around over months or weeks or days like this one does. And then as the stakes rise and we start to focus in more on a larger chunk, maybe even half of the movie, as in this case, though that's pretty unusual, we get kind of a more compressed, focused, and moment-to-moment period of time, like one night or a weekend or whatever. I think The Shining does this, as a matter of fact, which we we discussed last time. I just kind of feel like it automatically raises the stakes somehow. It makes things more immediate and dramatic. I do think a a lot of movies do it, and you're right, The Shining does do it. Somehow I feel like this movie does it better than most, and I can't quite put my finger on why. It feels like, well, every time I've watched the movie – I have almost always paused it here. And one time I had to pause it and I had to come back to the movie another night. And like, it was such a clean pause point because you almost have two separate films. I'll be the same characters and, and, you know, a a continuation of the same storyline, of course, but the movie just shifts its tact in terms of storytelling and in terms of the type of horror that you're going to witness. It's a, it's a, full stop, like rotating on its heels, heading off in a different direction. Um, And it may not be totally clear to you at this point in the movie, but I do think it's so adept and it doesn't skip a beat. It doesn't feel like something's changed. It's just that before you know it, the movie is off in a different direction. And it's just odd that it happens right here, square in the middle of the film. I honestly couldn't think of another movie off the top of my head that, that does it quite this cleanly and unsuspectingly. Well, there's a little movie called Devil's Pass that, that I think <laughs> takes a, a very similar shift closer to the third act than the midway point, but that's, that's neither here nor there. Well, we'll, um, get, we'll get to Devil's Pass, Vic. Don't yeah. worry when, when it's time for, for that <laughs> genre. <laughs> but uh, No, I agree, and I think that I like movies that play around with structure. And, and I'm not wedded to the three-act structure uh, like a lot of, of critics and, and, and movie goers are, even if, it's, even if it's not something you're sort of aware of. You're like, ah, it's weird. I don't like it. it. It does something different than what I'm used to. I love that it does something different than what I'm used to. I think the, the challenge for the movie is that, like you said, Rich, you can pause it here and it feels like even with all the connections that – there are almost two separate movies here and we are now beginning the separate movie and that that brings one to compare those two movies to see how they match up against each other. So I will go through this and there was definitely, I think as I've watched this more, I've come to appreciate more in this section, but I do feel it is weaker than the first half. That's a bold statement. It is a bold statement. I mean, but I think we've we've okay, sort of touched on that. Yeah, I've got a ten inch penis. That's a bold statement. <laughs> it is, and I'm not sure it's factual, but I don't so want to know for sure. The, fact, the second half of Terrified is not quite as good as the first half is. Uh, a little bold, I guess. <laughs> as we've talked about elsewhere in the, I don't know. I'd be interested in going back and listen, trying to listen to what our highlights were. 
from the first time we watched this because I do think that this movie has a lot of high highlights that happen in the third act. For me, all like a lot of the really like memorable beats happen in the third act. Although I, I will agree that the the mystery of the first act is what seduces you about this film. Well, I've definitely said from the beginning that I don't think anything lives up to the sort of promise of that open with the wife in the bathtub. For me, that that just was like such a statement of purpose that it's very difficult to give us a set piece that packs the same punch that that does. But I, I definitely in no way feel like this movie starts to flounder or loses its way or anything like really, really noticeable. I think it's it's just a great fucking movie and... I definitely don't think it goes astray, but but we'll we'll get into that and see. You know, I'm, I'm sure. Yeah, Vic's not thinking it goes off a cliff, but but you know, it's it's fair, and we'll we'll discuss it more. But um, before we do that, I gotta pop this baby open. There's my chaser. There's the hazy little thing. So, uh, hearing the discussion that the uh, investigators uh, or the information that they give Juan, he says, "Good luck. You'll need it." And then we're off to the races, and uh, we have like the shots of them, with, you know, getting out of their cars, and they've got their gear, and they're, you know, they're moving in, and this just really does feel like a classic plot point too to end um, the second act of a movie, not a midpoint turn. And as Rich said, like I, I can't think of another movie that has this type of transition beat halfway through the movie. It's usually going into Act Three when you see something like this, and that's usually the biggest escalation that you get in a movie plot. Whether it's halfway or Act Three, we've we've turned the plot in a compelling new dire- direction. It's ratcheting up the intensity to a higher level. We're done with the flashbacks. We're up to date, and we're going to a more visceral level of immediacy in the plot. And for me, that's just good storytelling, and, and it is somewhat unique. I just think it totally works here. I just thought of this uh, from *Dust Till Dawn*. Oh, interesting! Yeah, that That's, is roughly half, maybe not quite half, but close, right? Yeah, I would say it's like a long act one, but I haven't seen that movie in a while. And that's I mean, that's maybe a, a more dramatic turn. That is like you're entering like a whole different movie. Like that's true. Yeah, it almost that's be. If this turned into a musical after they after they get to the uh, apartments here. Yeah, that's a huge, huge gear shift. And this is more of a classical escalation than a huge gear shift. They ask uh, about the neighbor, Walter, and we don't know anything is the answer. Nobody has seen him in a long time, which is a weird line from Funes, which means he lives in the neighborhood. Is that how we're supposed to take that? It would make sense, given his relationship to Alicia and the community, but... I guess so. Funes has a house in the in the in the neighborhood. Interesting. In any event, they go into Walter's house and they're seeing all the crazy piles of furniture and stuff and the disarray that is unique to this particular house. Because then we see Yano over there at Alicia's and he's putting the lights on and everything seems to be in order at her house. So that just kind of speaks to the. Each of these things has its own signature and approach and M.O., and they are distinct between the three houses. And then Albrecht is at Juan's house, and it's dark. I guess the power is off there because she's using a flashlight. And Yano puts the light on at Alicia's, and he's 
scoping things out as seriously as he should. And, oh, he's looking at the, this is creepy, he looks at the chair that the dead boy was sitting in at that kitchen table. And it just kind of, you know, the audience gives a little shiver as you remember the significance of that innocuous looking chair at the kitchen table. Now, here's what I will say as we enter this phase of the movie is that speaking of comparing parts, and I know I'm not talking about Vic's 10-inch long penis. Um, <laughs> Damn right you're not. Let's get our rulers out, boys. <laughs> <laughs> is that this movie, as I've returned to it over and over again, I, I remember thinking, like, as I as I settled into this the first time I watched the movie, it's pretty clear that what you're what you're probably signing up for is 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 almost a like an interwoven anthology. You're going to see three different hauntings play out in three different ways. And yes, there's going to be some crossover, but ultimately you're about to watch three different hauntings. There is a competition, I think, between those three hauntings of what which one really carries the story. And it's interesting how, to me, you know, and I won't go into specific detail. We can we can parse it as we go. But for me, one house clearly takes the lead, whereas the others start to feel like filler pretty quickly. Interesting. Yeah, I will want to get into that. I think I know which house you're choosing. It's the one with the crack in the wall. But uh, but let's look at that as we move That's forward. Funny because I would I would actually choose a different house. I also want to say, as we get the introduction to the three houses, one of the things I was struck by is in the haunted house genre in general, I feel like one of the most important things is getting an understanding of the geography of the space. Where are you? How many rooms are there? Are you upstairs? Are you downstairs? And this movie, especially Walter's, you don't in, in Walter's segments. You don't see anything really except his bedroom, if I'm not mistaken. So when when uh, Funyas and Rosentock walk into his living room, it's the first time that you're seeing these other parts of his of his house because of the way the story's broken up. It's you know it's not like you get a walking tour of each space to to sort of get an understanding of it. But I just thought it was interesting the way that they approach the space and what information they give you and what they don't give you. And I don't even think it's, it's terribly relevant because none of the places are very big in terms of like knowing where you are in each apartment or whatever, but it's very different from something like the conjuring or even the shining or the pact for some reason it comes to mind. Oh, for sure. Well, that's that whole movie lives on the, the blueprint of the house. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, and there's so many roving cameras, I think, in in these other films that are just sort of either an unknown point of view or maybe it is associated with a character. But sort of the purpose for it for the audience is to guide us through the space. And that doesn't happen in this movie. I mean, I was just recalling the opening shot. I believe it's the opening shot, but such an early shot of that kitchen where we're slowly moving in on, on Juan's wife, that is one of the only kind of moving camera disassociated from a conventional, Hey, these are the characters and we're just following them doing something kind of a shot. That's it. It is interesting. Yeah. That this movie is not really 
playing that game with the audience, trying to make us a spirit roaming through the space because that's somehow going to be important. But as you said, these are very simple locations, too. These are small houses. Of course, so was the house in uh, The Pact. But uh, yeah, it's just a different, different strategy, for sure. Yeah, but we are familiar with these haunted places. And as we watch the investigators begin to explore them, we immediately recognize which one is which because we have seen several sequences, major sequences happen in each of the locations. I will say, Vic, you, you said that we hadn't seen the living room of Walter. Well, when he comes in the door and unpacks his new video camera, I think that's in the, uh, this room. That's in the living room. Ah, uh, you're right. Okay. Yeah. But, I mean, nothing significant happens there. Uh, but just yeah. you, know, you, see, you see him looking out there. At some, I mean, that's where the, the bald man is making shadow puppets, right? Yeah, yeah, because Walter's in the bedroom, and he's sort of looking at that kind of uh, at that wall where the shadow puppets are happening. <laughs> yeah, it's not a new place. but So getting back to it, I think it's kind of also creepy because this is revisiting things that we've seen and, and you know you go from evoking the dead boy in the chair to Albrecht in Juan and Clara's uh, bathroom and we see all the blood stains in a much dimmer kind of creepier light on the bathroom tiles and the movie is kind of taking us through each of the these these past horrors and kind of preparing us for what's next as Albrecht snaps uh, flash photos of the bloodstains, the terrible bloodstains. And then she has this weird, uh, I don't know what kind of device this is. I don't even know how to describe it, but we, we get some various props throughout this whole portion of the movie that don't um, pay off, but they're interesting. Yeah. Interesting. I mean, I guess, I don't know. To me, like they, this is the most groan inducing part of the movie for me. I think every time I return to it, it annoys me that it's just like you get these sort of long sections of them playing with these goofy toys that, that never go anywhere, particularly Albrecht. It's just sort of like ghosty nonsense. And it feels the, it feels like the thing that, that steers the most into the dull cliches that we've been seeing, especially ever since like a haunting of, um, or a legend of hell house. The pseudoscience. The pseudoscience itself, yeah. There's something low-tech about it, which I appreciate it. I feel like the ghost hunters in these movies tend to emphasize how high-tech their stuff is as a way of trying to justify how scientific their approach is. And I sort of like that this was like shit floating in water, and and it, <laughs> this all looked very basic, I guess. Or not basic, but, you know, it it it, it wasn't a bunch of, like, flashing lights and like things beeping and temperature meters and tricorders and shit. It at least took a different approach to it. Although I agree it doesn't pay off. Yeah. It, it's not ostentatiously techie. It definitely doesn't feel like insidious or, you know, one of those, uh, or even okay. the orphanage it has, but dare I say kind of a del Toro esque feeling in some ways. I I had the exact same thought. That's very strange that that would be our association with of, with their ghost hunting tools. But yes, that's exactly what I thought. Is it reminded me of Guillermo del Toro. Yeah, which is probably not an accident. We do get, uh, I guess, like a black light sequence where Rosentalk is panning this light over um, a bathroom, which I guess must be Walter's bathroom. Yeah. 
And there's all kinds of crazy shit that this light is revealing. I mean, we've got handprints, but also looks like maybe words or something are written on the on the bathroom walls. And I don't know quite what to make of it, but it's it, it's definitely weird that we have these like symbols and handprints and possibly scrawled characters all over his bathroom wall that are only detectable with the black light. Semen, John. There's semen all over Walter's bathroom. Yeah, that's why. Yeah, I would. Yeah, it's like a early CSI. <laughs> it's also yeah. It's weird that he doesn't really investigate it or try to read anything into it. Like Funes is like not even particularly interested in what's going on. You you think that their goal is to come here and find evidence? So why wouldn't you look? For further into this discovery why is it just kind of glanced over the black light actually reminded me of seven uh just to bring everything back to uh Copelson. that was my sort of association with it but exactly i have exactly the same reaction which is that in seven they use it to tremendous effect when they pull the picture down and you get the black light that says help and that's what i sort of thought is they're going to get there's somebody to look at this there's going to be a subtitle and the subtitle is going to say something nonsensical but it'll probably mean help in, or, you know, or something uh, of the equivalent, but no, it doesn't, it doesn't seem to come to anything. Yeah. Again, we're back to the idea of this tech doesn't really have payoffs, cheap or cliche or otherwise that just, they don't really, you know, use it to much purpose. It's just kind of background in a way, but yep. in the foreground of that scene, I guess, is this little conversation that uh, Funes and Rosentalk have where the idea of fear comes up and Rosentalk is, you know, sort of asking, are you afraid? And this cop is like, I'm not going to deny it. As we see later, he's, I mean, the idea of the movie's called terrified. I mean, I think that's certainly relevant and he becomes paralyzed by his fear and a bit later and Rosentalk says, I'm not going to deny it either. It, it's just kind of interesting to have these guys, just have a conversation, which is, you're afraid, I'm afraid too, basically. There's definitely a lack of machismo mm-hmm. in the, in there that you would kind of expect, especially from Funes, the, the cop. I also made a note that uh, Rosentalk, I know we talked a little bit about the actor and his performance. He reminds me of Hugo Weaving. Yeah. Just a note for the remake, if, if Guillermo del Toro, who I know is a listener, Guillermo, you know you're listening <laughs> He's uh, pouring over every word that we we share. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I think uh, I see that. He has that, that type of look. Um, yeah, the eyes. There's something in his eyes that's just – it's it's wild. It's Again, I just find him fascinating to watch. Yeah, I, I think that while they do a pretty good job of shaping all these investigators as, as having unique qualities, there is something so giddy and loopy and enthusiastic – and fearless about his character. It's the most interesting performance. Like of of all three of them, he definitely feels the most unique and specific, which is odd because he's the one who is introduced with very little flourish. You know, you like, you kind of get like the, I forget what the little bit of background they give as they're entering the houses. It's like, Oh, he's another investigator that they've worked with before from the Americas. Yeah, he has such less weight or focus in the narrative as the other two. Like you would say, Yano, he's kind of almost a co-lead, 
and then Albrecht has a lot of significance. And then Rosenthal is sort of, oh, he's there too. So, yeah, it, it, he doesn't get the same amount of screen time or backstory. But, yeah, he might be the most interesting of all three, which is interesting. He's the other tenor, right? Yeah. It's not uncommon for the, the character who gets that kind of treatment to be the one who, like, you have the most latitude. Like, you can just come in and, like, chew scenery because you don't necessarily have a plot that you're carrying on your back. Like, you can just show up and just go full tilt in any direction because you're you're just sort of a free spirit. Like, you're just there to sort of fill a space in the story. Yeah, even though, like, all of these characters, it's one of the things I like about this movie, even though Funyas, like, seems like to me he, he, he would be the closest to certain archetypes, he really doesn't fulfill those functions. Neither does Albrecht. I mean, there really isn't any kind of conventional character in this movie. But, but yes, like, he's sort of the Boba Fett, if you will, of the film. That, like, he doesn't have any narrative obligations, and he can just be the sort of enigmatic character that might be the most interesting of them all. I love it. I'm sorry. He's the Boba Fett of the movie. is just perfect. That's, <laughs> that's hey, Vic, we're getting along tonight. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> he, he does get he gets a few like really good line reads in there like i i do love the bit i don't know if we're, you're quite there yet but the the thing where you know funes is doing his, his normal thing where he's like he's like i i have a condition and and is explaining he's scared and like and rosentalk just sort of casually is like so this is not the ideal environment for you to be in <laughs> yeah like, he's just like he just you know just sort of observes that this guy is like laying out all these reasons why he shouldn't be there and he's just like yeah you shouldn't you really shouldn't be a part of this but he's still like highly enthusiastic and engaged there's nothing that's like having him send off Funes. yeah he, he never like turns around and earnestly like grabs Funes's arm and says do you want to go home or something like he's not really connecting with him or trying to shepherd him through this experience it's like yeah yeah okay all right yeah yeah that sounds like it might not be a good thing but hey look at this this is really cool (laughs) that's kind of his energy so moving on from that uh then we come back to albrecht and this is like this weirdly we're talking about personal connections random stuff she's sitting there at this desk full of reel-to-reels and strange bottles and very archaic things. There's a Polaroid camera on this desk and this larger apparatus that words fail me to describe, but there's a little microphone recording device on the desk as well. And it is a definite, if it's not the exact model, it is within a model or two of my first podcasting microphone, which I'm 90% sure we began this podcast using back in Venice when I think uh, Vic was calling in and it was me and Mike in my apartment. Certainly for my fantasy football podcast, we used this, this microphone that you would, you know, stick on the desk in front of you or the table, coffee table, whatever. And it would sort of pick up the, the whole room and you, you know, you would send that digital file to your computer and, and that was your podcast. So it's kind of interesting to see it here in Argentina uh, on on Albrecht's desk that she's um, surrounded by all this gear, and that happens to be one of them. John, when you said the beginning of this podcast, I assumed you meant the beginning of this episode of the podcast, which started <laughs> three years ago. Uh, no, I'm talking about, uh, <laughs> God, when did we start? Um, it's 
the Friday the Thirteenth version of this. It was yeah. a long time ago. It was it was yeah. five years ago. Yes, five years ago. Rosentalk tells Funyas that they're looking for clues regarding what happened that night. But as audience members, do you guys pick up something about a specific particular night in this movie? I mean, they are at Walters, and we did see Walter appear to be killed by his nocturnal visitor. But we don't know if he disappeared, like nobody, he's a missing person, was a corpse found? We don't know any of those specifics. So it's interesting that as an outsider, uh, Rosentalk associates Walter's home with the idea of what happened that night. Do we know if they have the video where he's, where he's uh, abducted by the, the, the ball man? We saw some photos earlier. Um, that indicated like some some shit that he he shot got out, and that's what brought Albrecht. Which, by the way, I think lends credence to my theory that Walter was possessed or whatever that night, because I think that and and I don't know if this is true or not, but if the whatever the thing is that takes him over, it's sent that footage to Albrecht. As a way, you know, akin to uh, Return of the Living Dead, send more paramedics as a way to bring more people into this space. Then she received whatever footage, whatever evidence uh, she got. But it's clear when she goes to his apartment that she's never spoken to Walter. Right. Yeah. So that sort of suggests to me that what they're looking for is what happened the night that that footage was taken, even if they don't know you know, how it got to them. And that's, I don't know. What do you, what do you guys think of that? Do you think there's anything to that? Intriguing, provocative idea. Bold, would you say? (laughs) Interesting, but convoluted. Uh (laughs) Uh-huh. I'm more receptive to it than I think Rich is. Like, I I think that kind of clicks into place narratively for me with the chronology and everything else. We don't have any reason to think that Walter ever actually communicated with Albrecht. And as we talked about earlier, you know, the idea of like, when exactly did he send off footage? I was pushing back earlier when you guys were sort of giving this thing a level of insidiousness that I I put on par with different forms of evil. I'm talking about Walter, like goading the kid to back up into the street, knowing that a bus is about to take him out. Mm. I, I do. I still have some struggles with that, but I mean, I think we we clearly see that you become part of this thing. You become assimilated. You become tool, plaything, or just one of them somehow. So it's not hard to believe that they might pull us and more paramedics type of thing. Given that they want blood, they want like as we're about to find out, they want something from people. They want victims. So it does kind of make sense to me, Vic. I I like it. Well, and consider this, too, that if that's not the case, what it means is that Walter survived that night, got the footage, sent it to Albrecht, and then disappeared at a separate time that we just never see. That strikes me as unlikely. Sure, but given the way that this movie plays a lot of segments, that makes a little more sense given what we know about the 
the film. There was the other instance where Walter had the, the creature over him when he had the sheets over his head and the creature was reaching for him. And then suddenly we just cut to Walter and it's the next day and he's at work. And obviously, like, no harm came of him. I don't know that we necessarily have any strong indication that whatever happened to Walter when the bald man grabbed him after stepping out of the closet would necessarily be the end of him. So he feasibly could have just woken up the next day still terrified and and sent this off. And the fact that this movie just leaves huge chunks of story unexplained to the point where it just becomes – I always want to use this phrase. Is it is it is it de rigueur? Is that how you say it? De rigueur. Yeah. Mm-hmm. French. Okay. Yeah. Um, yes. Where this movie just sort of makes it de rigueur that that we're just going to skip over pieces of the story and you're going to be okay with it. We're just gonna we're just gonna assume that you're okay with the fact that we're connecting A to C uh, without actually knowing B. So I, I don't know. I, I guess I'm more willing to accept your second theory, Vic, that, that you don't find likely. So but thanks for suggesting it. <laughs> yeah. All right. I, I think that it does do that. There's tons of jumping around and skipping and leaving things ambiguous and open-ended. But, I mean, I, I think just in terms of film grammar, what happens to Walter the last time we see him that in cinematic terms is is somebody getting killed and we don't really see enough compelling evidence the other way like sorry rich for the sport ball uh reference but in a football sense the play happens you watch it the referees rule okay it's a touchdown and then you you look at all these camera views angles to see if there's enough to overturn it and if there isn't, you just have to go with what it looks like, which is what they called on the field, what the referee originally called. And I think that that looks clearly like Walter is getting killed. He's screaming in agony or, you know, something's poking him, stabbing him. He's he's hurting. And then we never see him again. I just think that you kind of have to, without some other evidence, you have to assume that that's, that's where he died. I should watch more sports. That is a very compelling uh, description. <laughs> well, I will say, look, I mean, Rich, honestly, like in your defense, part of what makes this film so compelling and part of why it's gotten this far in the tournament is because, as I said earlier, it has secrets. Like there are these mysteries, these things that we get to talk about and parse over and like, look – this is a lot of fucking fun. Like it's fun when you start to feel pieces click together in your head and I get to throw it back to you guys and see if it clicks. And John says it does. And Rich says it doesn't. And we get to talk about that. Nobody's having that conversation about the conjuring. Yeah. It's, I think this is a very, you know, fascinating movie for those ambiguities. What makes it feel compelling and like have a, a unique fingerprint is that, if you're talking to someone who's in film school or, or aspiring to make a horror film or any kind of film, really, it's not like I would point to this and, and recommend it for that. Like, like, look at the way that this guy did this. Like, that's what you should do when you approach your story. I mean, John, like you, you advise screenwriters. Yep. Like, this is not a the, – the approach taken in this film is not an advisable one. It's just that somehow it, it works, I think. Well, yeah, when we were talking about chronology earlier and how seldom this type of structure works, that that's to its credit. But yeah, it's a perilous path. And in the hands of a amateur or even an inexperienced screenwriter playing those type of games that this movie does, 
usually uh, end up being a, a fruitless endeavor. So it's really, you know, to this movie's credit that it's able to break a lot of rules and do things in an unconventional way and and play as well as it does. Getting back to where we are, like the Rosentalk and Funya's conversation, it's actually, it, it just strikes me watching it again here how kind of comedic it is that, um, Rich, you've, you've referenced Funya's talking about his ailments but in one scene he basically says his blood doesn't coagulate so he's a hemophiliac he has a hearing aid he can hear very little and then we also see that he has a heart attack so he has at least three significant health conditions (laughs) it's kind of a miracle that funia has made it this far it really is yeah he, he acts like this is all pretty new stuff to him so who knows? Maybe he had some some like horrific on the job uh, incident in his past that is responsible for all of this. Although I don't know, I don't know that anything causes hemophilia. I'm, I'm not a doctor. <laughs> yeah, let us stress for everyone listening: none of us are doctors. <laughs> very important to understand. No, if we were, we'd be very busy right now. Uh, oh shit! Right. Evergreen podcast. Sorry. Not anymore. Yeah, <laughs> should be taken as medical advice. Please consult your doctor before doing anything advice on this podcast. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> All right. The lawyers just breathe a lot easier. So yeah, from there, the guys, they discuss the idea that fear is contagious, which I'm not sure beyond again, the idea that the movie is called terrified. I don't know that that's relevant. Maybe it is, but we see that Rosen talks Spanish is a little shaky. We get more of the equipment and the toys and whatnot. Not a lot of attention is paid to it. And then it goes to this answering machine and the, which definitely feels like a 20th century item, but maybe not in Argentina. Yeah. Maybe not in Argentina. It lasted another 10 years or so. And Yano listens to the, the messages from the neighbor kid's mother and the dialogue there suggests that it's weeks after the corpse came home to Alicia. And she's just ignored her neighbor and these messages since then. And the woman also, of course, uh, refers to Funyas as Alicia's ex, which underscores the strangeness of his disconnection from her, which we've talked about. And, yeah, they don't share a line of dialogue until later in the movie. We haven't even really gotten to that yet. So, I have a slightly mechanical question. So there's a, there's a scene in this movie where Rosentuck is talking and the subtitles uh, stop. Like, they continue having a conversation, but there are no subtitles. Did you guys experience that? And, mm-hmm. and if so, is that supposed to be because... Rosentalk is not speaking proper Spanish or like, I can't ever figure out what's happening there or why it's not translated for us. Or is it just a bad translation service? I feel like it's uh, do you remember the scene in lost in translation when Bill Murray's doing the commercial and the director is, gives him long explanations of what he wants from him. And the translator just says more intensity. <laughs> like, <laughs> you, are you sure that's all he said? Because he because he talks a lot. She's like, yes, more intensity. That's what I. That's kind of what I feel like is happening. Yeah, I mean, we've talked about like the quality of the translation here it seems pretty iffy. 
I think that's really all it is. So Albrecht's device registers something, and then we get to the the point where Rosentalk, like a curious child, keeps messing with the levitating silverware, which is probably a bad idea, and passing his hand through the top of those implements does in fact result in a knife stabbing through his hand. It looks painful, very painful, but it still uh, fascinates Rosentalk when he realizes that the supernatural presence responsible for his stabbing appears to be drinking his blood, sucking it, in fact. Which is one of the clues that we get to the nature of the things, whatever the the malignant forces and this malevolent forces in this movie, is that blood is a trigger, right? And that's we're getting ready to to get to Rosentock telling Funes, take this and go clean up the blood. And then later on, Albrecht says, you shouldn't be here, you're bleeding. And it's it's just sort of interesting. It's one of the cool details that gets dropped in. Again, I love the way that they drop those things in. And you don't get the ABCD connection. It's just bleeding bad. They like blood. And this is the first instance we get of that, that that starts to draw that conclusion. Yeah, the whole vampirism element just kind of comes out of nowhere. This is an element of what I think is makes a lot of good ghost or monster films where it's like they don't they don't fully understand it and they never they never will at least in the context of, of this movie. And to me that is almost always a strength unless you have like a killer explanation and and backstory like unless you're the descent don't bother like trying to like give me like the full explanation of of what's happening here. Keep it a mystery. Let your characters be confused and tell the story through them. You don't have to explain the backstory of the creatures. Totally agree. Uh, fuck, The Descent is so good at that. Yes. Can't wait to do monster movies, dude. That's gonna be that's gonna be a top five seed for sure. Oh yeah, oh yeah. That's definitely one of the greatest movies of this century, no doubt. Yeah. But yes, I agree, Rich. I mean that you're right. You're you. You're not the descent. If you don't have exactly the right explanation, leave it a mystery. Let us fill it in. That's what we're here for. That's literally what we're here doing. Yep. Yep. And we'd be bored if you laid it all out for us. And usually yep. it's ham handed when you do. Yeah. But yeah, now we've so, got like blood just like trickling upwards to indicate that, that this is this whatever phenomena is I'm interested in in blood. And yeah, I'm I'm down with that. It's a nice it's a nice practical effect. I mean, it's not it's not like a wild mystery as to how they did it, but I still liked the way that it looked on film. Yeah, it's oh, a yeah. classic it's technique. Cool. The sound of the sucking is good. I don't know if you were able to make that out on your on your speakers, John, but the the, the sucking sound is is subtle, but but but, uh, but pleasing to the ear. Yeah. <laughs> And uh, I, I like—I I don't know if it's here or if it's after he pulls his hand off that Rosentalk like says to Funes like like I'm like I'm fine like he just like he's very casual about the fact that his hand has just been impaled on a bunch of silverware. <laughs> yeah, he he just sort of patches it up and you know gets on with it. Another one of these moments is very much like Walter when he's opening his armoire, where they know the thing is in there. And they're going to open it up, and we as the audience are so prepared for 
some kind of horrific visual that even as sort of seasoned horror people where we know maybe we're going to see, maybe we're not, but it's, there's a, there's such a anxiety. There's such a tension in that moment that it really works. Even though in the, when they, they pull it open, all the silverware drops and you realize that you're not going to get the, the visual payoff that you are going to get down the road, which I think is super important, right? Like it drives me crazy when you're going to set these things up and then not show us it. That's okay as long as you're going to show us at some point. And this movie definitely pays off in that respect. Yeah, it's not a tease, you know, like yeah. you, you get the good stuff. It just, it makes you build your anticipation for it, which is perfect. There's some dialogue here about we're inside the nest. I don't quite follow that. I mean, it's amazing how much mythology this movie throws at you in terms of ideas. I guess that's another one. So we have a nest, and that apparently that's Walter's house because that's what Rosen Rosentalk is saying to Albrecht. I have a note here about there's a there's a bit right around here, and I can't swear it's right here. So I apologize if I'm behind or, or ahead of where we are, but where Funes is really reacting to everything that's going on and you can see that it's freaking him out and he sort of backs up into a room and we get a cutaway and then we go back to it and all the pictures behind him are crooked and it's a marvelous touch. And then it cuts and then we, we you know, it goes away and then when we see it again, the pictures are all back, but it's really interesting. Did you guys notice that? I don't think no. I did that. Is is that the same bit where he's like kind of looking around the house and like things are moving around and starting to levitate and gravitate toward no, another room? It's getting there, yes, but it's before that. It's like it's like right before that. No, I well, think I missed. It. Yeah, I, I I didn't even know. Like I might be beyond that as I'm playing the film because I just saw Funyas notice something slide across the floor in the background while Rosentalk is on the phone with uh, Albrecht. Oh, and something sliding up the wall behind him. Yes. So. There's, a, there's a lot of cool shit happening in the background. Oh, there it is. Like, is that it, it? It literally just happened a second later. Like, yeah, the, the everything is askew. All the pictures on the wall are at a weird angle. And then, yeah, we get the reverse shot, and it's all back to normal behind him. It's a wonderful touch. I love that in these kinds of movies. Again, when you're trying to create this sense of reality slipping. Yes. And, and especially for Funes, who is losing his grip on reality and can't handle it. Uh, I find those touches, and especially something like that, because that's just for us. Funes can't see it. It's behind it. Yeah, so that makes it even cooler. I really, really reacted to that. Wow, amazing. I had not noticed it until just now. And right after that, we get another completely separate piece of mythology, which is where Rosentalk suggests that time passes very rapidly here, which reminds me of Oculus in a way. I'm always pondering what that means and where is that, where do you see that taking effect, this idea that the time passes very quickly? I don't know that I can point to anything in the movie that, that indicates what that really means. No, I can't either. I can't see a payoff for that one where it's like, oh, oh you know, like an Oculus, you, you, you'll, you'll starve to death or dehydrate or whatever because time is moving so quickly. In this film, they don't have a gag about time moving quickly. 
the note that I have for for this bit for right after the, the I have the crooked pictures right after that what I wrote is Rosen talk is going mad now again super stoned but I wonder if that's part of it right like that's what we said is that I I feel like Rosen what happens to Rosen talk is he goes insane and I wonder if this is part of it and that's why we don't see it pay off you have to understand that not every theory or sage thing that these investigators throw out is anything more than a theory. Like they're not hitting a bullseye every time they speak um, where they're like, Oh, they completely know everything that's happening. That would be, that would be dumb. Right. I do think it's kind of reasonable to start taking a grain of salt with some of their theories and interpretations. And maybe, maybe this is where we chalk that up. I think I actually would prefer that to, they somehow have a perfect understanding of all of these crazy forces and rules and dynamics that are in play when they have no business, there's no explanation for how they could understand all of it so quickly. What works about this movie is that the investigators don't understand. They're not Tangia giving us, you know, the gospel for how these things work. They have some rough, vague guidelines for what they think but it's not at all clear that they're right or that there's, you know, that, that there's a lot of evidence to back it up. So it gives you, look, they're going to they're going to sketch in some outlines uh, and we as viewers can can sort of fill in the rest. But even the, the, the stuff that they give us might be wrong as, as well. It should be right, because exactly. it would be sort of yeah. ludicrous otherwise. Now, the next scene, which is kind of interesting, is we're back to Yano, and he's looking in, I wish I read Spanish, but I guess he's looking in the kid, the dead kid's little school book, and, like, then you have, like, this compass in a bowl of water suddenly react and move um, by itself to press against the glass, and then we get the rattling of these glasses in this cabinet, which is, is sort of a uh, foreshadowing of something that's going to happen to Yano in a little bit. You think they might be compelled to launch themselves at him, perhaps, but that would occur off camera, though we see the aftermath. At, at the moment, though, he's taking a call from uh, Funyas, who is, yes, again, melting down. And he's like, I'm not sure I'm good at this. <laughs> Yana says, it's okay, relax. And he's, again, taking charge and, you know, bringing some leadership. Funyas references his little problem here. Uh, but we know he has lots of problems. What do you think is the little problem that he's referring to? Is his health. <laughs> that sounds <laughs> more specific than that. Just, just broadly, his health. I mean, I assume it must be the, the coagulation thing. Although my impression watching it the first time was that it, it was his heart. Well, he just cleaned up an awful lot of blood on the floor. But I think that was uh, Rosentalk's blood. He right? I don't think he's ever cut. Yeah, I yeah. think it's almost a, a running joke in the in the movie, like the idea that Funyas's vulnerabilities are, are so front and center. But uh, no, I don't know exactly which one. It is. I mean, it's almost interesting, right? Like his his whole thing is he's he's a hemophiliac, and then he just he just he suffers a completely unrelated heart attack. Yeah, that that's the one thing that no dialogue prepares us for, right? Yeah. 
It has, it has nothing to do with his hearing aid and nothing to do with his hemophilia. He just has a heart attack. So, yeah, this is leading into one of my favorite sort of cinematic scenes uh, in terms of the staging in the whole movie where they're on the phone together and he's like, well, where are you? I'm, I'm right here. And, you know, they're, they're at windows right across the street from each other. Yano is seeing something different than Funyas is, which is really cool and has lots of implications. And it's also just a great sort of, I would almost call it a set piece, you know, in a budget like this. He says, there's a guy by the window. That's not you, is it? Um, this is Yano. And meanwhile, we know that Funyas is in the, in the kitchen. He's not in, at the window that uh, Yano's looking at. And they're trying to figure this out. And that's cool. You know, he's like, what the fuck are you talking about, Yano? And he's like, oh, you're right. He's not in the kitchen. And then we have this wonderful shot of just panning left and right, the POV shot of Yano as he moves less than a foot, a few inches, and just the lattice work of the window separates whether he sees the, I'm 90% sure, if not 100%, that he's seeing the, the accordion man, as I might call him, that killed Walter um, in this, in Walter's house, which makes sense. But the guy disappears when he's on the left side of the window frame and, and appears on the right. It's just such a cool little visual game. I absolutely love it. it. It seems like something that we have seen before, even in this competition. I'm having a hard time placing it. I want to say for some reason in Insidious, something was going on where, where someone was seeing something from one angle and not from another. But but, but don't quote me on it. It, it, it didn't feel 100% fresh, but it did feel like an excellent edu- uh, execution. It doesn't feel unfresh to me. Like there's nothing where I'm like, Oh yeah, this reminds me of X, Y, or Z. I can't rule it out, but to me, there's nothing about this sequence that feels familiar, but I don't know. You could be right. Well, and we're coming up on a scene that's going to identify this as a characteristic of the the thing, the evil that we're dealing with. And I find that fascinating. Yeah, there's almost like a sci-fi concept being played out here, which is very cool probably the the most defining characteristic of that we get in this film really is that this mm-hmm. this this point of this point of view issue yeah absolutely where the movie puts its money where its mouth is and it's uh-huh. not just sort of talk and conjecture but no you see it completely play out in the cinematic language of the film and it culminates in a sequence where you know he's doing this sort of oh he's there he's gone he's there he's gone and then Boom, he's not just there, but he's not across the street. He's right on the opposite side of the window. I think this is the definition of a good jump scare. Exactly. This is when we talked about this mostly in relation to Halloween H2O, uh, that yep. the, the jump scare is much derided among horror fans. And I don't think it should be. It can be overused, but it is just a tool in the toolbox, and you can you can pull it out in the right time and execute it well. And holy shit, is it effective? So, and this is absolutely an example of it being done right. Yeah, in this case, there's nothing fraudulent or cheap about this jump scare. It's 
primo goodness in that department. We're not talking except, about <laughs> except no, John that it was Janet Lee on the other side of the window. I don't know if you noticed that. <laughs> oh God. <laughs> Of all Halloween H2O references. Sorry. <laughs> oh, God. Yeah, the the king of fraudulent and cheap jump scares does deserve yeah. a mention on this podcast. You're, you're right. But, yeah, no cats jumping out of closets here. That's, we, we've reached our Halloween reference quota for, for this film, so congratulations, everyone. Your bonus is in the mail. Drink. <laughs> drink, everybody drink. Yep. <laughs> and the accordion man, played by Janet Lee. One of the other under-the-radar overused jump scares that's, like, legitimate but not is where it's not a cat or, you know, your friend, but when people sort of rotate 90 degrees, they suddenly turn around and they're looking at the chest of the killer. It's not technically fraudulent, but I still hate that. I just want to say for the record, like, that one is also on my bad list. And this just doesn't fit any of any of those cliches. So really a fan. Also also closing refrigerator doors and the the, the killers on the other side. Well not that to was, mention medicine cabinets. Yeah, yeah we got oh god, don't even get me started mm-hmm. on medicine cabinets. The the classic profile that's the equivalent of uh the the shots that they use to telegraph that a car accident's about to happen. That that feels like the the horror equivalent of that. That the profile shot where they've They've emptied the frame for you so that something can fill it in. Yeah. Uh, and that one almost always delivered. Like, just like it's just, it's so overused that it's refreshing when someone opens a, a, a cabinet and it's no, one, no one is on the other side of it. And that's why I'm, I'm, I have to sort of push back, Rich, when you said, like, because we talked earlier about the bus hitting somebody and all that. Like, the idea that this shot of, of the guy appearing suddenly right in the window. Like the idea that you found that familiar, I'm just like, I'm kind of shocked by that. Cause we're talking about all of these huge cliches and like, I feel like I would know if that was a cliche or that, it, you know, if that had been done. Maybe. I'm willing to admit that I'm, I might be wrong. Well, it certainly struck a, a, a chord with you that you thought you'd seen it before. So, I mean, that is, that is what it is. We've got the the crack in the wall now. Like we start to see that this big crack is widening at Juan's place, and Albrecht approaches it, and you do get this sort of eerie significance of this that it it, it looks like a a juncture between worlds or something, you know, an ominous doorway of some kind. Meanwhile, at the other house, Funyas is finally like, "I'm done. I'm leaving." He's he's sort of telling Rosentalk, I'm out of here. Rosentalk, with his wide, crazy eyes, says that I found him below us. And Funyas can't resist coming over to see what, what the hell he's talking about. Ever the showman, Rosentalk pulls up the bedding and peers back at Funyas, like waiting for his reaction to what's under this bed, under Walter's bed, where we've already seen a lot of scary shit. Funyas is like, oh, there's nothing there. <laughs> but it's not empty, says Crazy Rosentalk. And he's doing like sort of a sleight of hand thing with his bloody uh, hand with the hole in it. And he's like, uh, there's more than one point of view. Playing with the idea that, that Rich, you were just talking about, that that's the big concept of the movie, really, that we that, that plays out, is, is that game. 
the quick, rapidly changing relationship between what is perceived and what is real. And sometimes, yeah, it, what is real is what is perceived and that's, that becomes dangerous very quickly. I, I really love this moment. This is one of my favorite uh, bits of the, of the entire movie for a couple reasons. I think the, I think the reveal of the creature under the bed is, is really well executed and, and paced. Like there's no real scare that happens. If, if anything, the creature almost seems a little afraid of them, which is very intriguing on its own. It seems like maybe there's more than, than one creature, or maybe it's the, the same uh, guy that's been folded in half. And the way that, that, that Rosentalk is observing them as well, it, it's almost like a, a scientist in the wild who would be observing like a bug who they know is like dangerous, but they don't really expect it to, to attack them. But they're just fascinated to, to see it operating on its own terms. There's very little sense of, of fear or attack here on the part of, of Rosentalk or the creature. Funes is the only stand-in for the audience, really. Who's terrified just to be in the same room? Just the, the the revelation of what's going on is the is the thing that frightens him, and not necessarily an apparent threat, which is just such a unique way to unveil the big horror of your movie. This is one of the most Lovecraftian moments, insofar as Rosentock reminds me of a Lovecraft protagonist who confronted with the fragmented reality that is what actually is and not the the veil of reality that's been pulled over our eyes is going mad right in front of us. And that's like you said, John, the bit where he's using the his wounded hand to sort of talk about perspectives and, and what you can see and what you can't. And as he pulls these things up and his excitement, but you can see that he's also losing his grip on reality because how can you grip reality when there's nothing under the bed on one side and this horrible creature under it on the other? Yeah, he's obviously enjoying playing these games with Funyas, and there's a definitely a, a slightly unhinged quality to him in, in, in this joy that he's evidently taking in all of this. And he speaks English, too. He says darkness and light in English, yeah. which is weird. Yeah, I, I love that read, though. Like, that is really where he hits his peak is on the, is on the darkness and light yeah. transition in English. Again, referring to them sort of occupying the same place and time, which is definitely Lovecraftian and, and, and just kind of speaking of these dimensions colliding. I'm looking at the shot, Rich, that you were talking about, where under the bed, Funya sees the folded up accordion man that has been bedeviling Walter. But uh, there appears to be another being behind him who looks similar to the first. And that would open a can of worms if it is a second instead of just like the one creature, you know, somehow paradoxically, which I would totally buy, that we see both the souls, the filthy souls of his feet in the foreground and then his head in the background. And it's another bald figure, but it does look different to me. Like, this is really nerdy shit, but, like, I see more, like, stubble of hair on this figure. And... To my eye, when I when I was taking my notes, and again now, 
Like, it looks like this other creature, to me, is not the same creature. It's similar, but it's not the same creature. But I would not, you know, don't don't bring me in front of a judge. <laughs> is it Walter? I don't no, think it's Walter, because Walter has a full head of hair. And we see him soon. I didn't see the full head of hair, but I'll have to check that out again. Well, we have the totally bald guy, and then we have this sort of stubble guy, and then Walter has, has, has black hair. I guess that's the thing with, with Walter transitioning, which I know we're not quite at that point yet, but with the fact that Walter has transitioned to one of these, it's that all these creatures seem to have, have once been human. And, yeah. and they converted into whatever this thing is. That's the impression I'm given, anyhow. Again, this sort of idea of vampirism or infection or assimilation, that's an interesting idea that everything we see has some origin in humanity, but something about being sucked into this other realm has transformed them, made them a part of something, agents of it. There's a huge jump scare here where the accordion man, as I think of him, pops up. And he he reaches for Funes, and he is folded up as usual, but I still see the other guy in the background. So no, there's definitively two of these creatures under this bed. So that's interesting. And that tells you, okay, so who the fuck is that? <laughs> again, yeah, cu- curious move, again, by the, by the film, that they've clearly established that there's one creature down there. Now, if it was Walter as... as- Vic suggested, like, that would, would make sense. But you're right, I don't feel like that adds up, given that we're led to believe that, that Walter is, uh, is in the crack in the wall later. Yeah, I mean, we, we get a pretty good look at Walter here in a few minutes, and, you know, he's still got his hair and all that. So, yeah, I think it's it's something else, which is fine. Just, yeah, it, makes, it raises questions, like, who the fuck is that? <laughs> How did he become a part of this? So we come back to Albrecht reaching her fingers through the crack in the wall. Somewhere around here, Rosenthal, by the way, he didn't seem disturbed by anything that we just talked about. He calls Albrecht and and she wants to know what he thinks they should do. And they basically agree to just keep documenting what's going on. And that just kind of reminded me that uh, there's going to be no, this house is clean beat in this movie. Like, as we talked about earlier, there's no sort of proactive solution going on here. It's just like they want to understand what's happening. That's the extent of it. There's no fixing it. There's something passive about this section of the film in that you have three scientists who aren't really trying to do anything. They're just trying to document stuff. They're not even really trying to document anything. Nobody's taking pictures. Nobody's writing anything down. Nobody even seems to be recording anything like audio, right? And then what you have for the next 20 minutes is just Funes going to each house, telling everybody that he's leaving. (laughs) And so there's not narratively, you get in, in his interaction with, um, with Albrecht, which is the last sort of of the houses I think that he comes to, but there's nothing that really happens. You know what I mean? Like none of these people, they don't document anything. Funes doesn't leave. He tells people he's leaving. They say they're documenting stuff, but nobody's actually doing anything. It's, it, it reminds me of 
the sort of the, the House of Horrors run at the end of The Shining, except that it occupies a much larger and more narratively significant chunk of the movie. And I really, I actually mm-hmm. found myself at a certain point getting kind of bored with Funes breathlessly running into rooms telling people how he couldn't do this and he had to leave. I think this must be tying into your sort of criticism of this part of the film. It is. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, Well, we're exactly one hour into the movie. And we have 28 minutes left. So we're not quite to act three when Funes is doing the stuff that you're criticizing. And in fact, at 102.42 is where he sees this bloody um, cabinet of glasses that we the filmmaker drew attention to with uh, Yano earlier. And of course, we're about to find out that Yano is directly associated with this cabinet of glassware now. And yeah, I, I kind of challenge you to tell me why this is not a good scene, you know, as he discovers his friend in this fucking cabinet. It's a, it's a good scene, right? But he's just gone over there to tell Yano that he's leaving. Because they got cut off on the phone, right? Sure, but this is the okay. end of all that nonsense that you're well, talking no, no. about. Yeah. But my point is, Funes is outside. He keeps leaving each of these places. And all he has to do is get in his car and leave. But instead, he feels like he has to go into the other place to tell somebody else that he's leaving. Well, it, this is his friend. Like, we'll get to why Why does he go see Albrecht. We'll see if that makes sense in a, in a couple but, he could call Albrecht and ask her to go over there. He could call 911 and ask the police to show. Well, not 911 because it's Argentina. He could do any number of things besides continue to insist that he has a condition. He could die at any moment. He's a hemophiliac. He shouldn't be in any of these places and then continue to thrust himself into these places over and over and over again. Wow, you I mean, have a big problem with that. Hmm. I do. I do. Funes is just the guy at the party. Who like you know at like ten o'clock is like well like uh like I gotta work tomorrow right and then like goes around to say his goodbyes and keeps telling everyone that he's talking to that he has to go to work tomorrow and before you know it it's two o'clock in the morning and you know he has a hard time functioning at his job the next day <laughs> yeah I don't want to watch a movie about that guy <laughs> see I I don't have a huge problem with it I mean I think that it's it's somewhat for comedic effect and I, I get that he's kind of this wishy-washy guy who's trying to do the right thing but he's really afraid and there's an inner conflict going on with him if it was that simple as just like bye Felicia I'm out of here you know I don't have time for this shit he would have gone half an hour ago but he does feel a, a loyalty to Yano. It's we're charting his performance and the writing of the character. I, I buy each little thing that, that keeps him here. He's not a librarian. He didn't come in off the street. He's not like an accountant who just lived next door. He is a cop. So he, he's giving he's an interesting version of a cop in that he's not macho and he doesn't think he's indestructible and he's not like leaping fearlessly into the into each breach that he faces. But at the same time, he's not just the type to actually just say "fuck y'all, I'm out of here." And I think that's borne out really significantly when he does leave completely and he still goes back. And I, I don't think that that sort of conflict within this character 
A, is is unintentional, and B, I don't think it's cheap or, you know, not borne out by by the story. I think kind of his whole story is he's he's afraid but obligated. Courage is doing what you think, what you know you have to do, even though you're afraid. And that, that's how I read this character. I find this whole section of the film kind of flaccid narratively. Now, look, it's scary. Right. So I don't want to take that. I don't want to take that away from it. This is an But you're saying he's not motivated. This is a guy who says, I'm leaving, who then leaves and then goes back into the haunted house to tell somebody else that he's leaving. And then he finds that guy in horrible shape. And so he goes into another haunted house next door to tell somebody else that he's leaving, but she should help the guy next door. That's what we're watching for the next 20 minutes. And the people that he's talking to are just quote-unquote documenting things, but they're not actually doing anything. There's nothing that actually happens here that drives the, the story. I'm pretty much with Vic on this one. Yeah, you're drawing a pretty clear line here that, like, that it's story-wise, it's weak. They are still effective, you know, like, to, like, John's point where you're like, you're like, tell me this isn't a good scene. Um, the one where, where Funes is, is trying to break out, out the back of the entertainment center to find Yano. Like, yes, it's a good scene, but in terms of, like, the narrative that's stringing them all together being weak, 100%. Vic is right. I just I disagree. I mean, I guess you guys need, like, somebody's kid to be here, and he needs to save the kid, or, you know, I guess that's what you're looking for. Like, we need some obvious, overarching motivation. It's not, like, moment to moment that you could understand in this scene where he'd be interested in finding out what's going on with this cabinet and he should just get in his car and call it a night and that's the end of the movie i just it doesn't strike me as that obvious with this with this character knowing what we know about him like i think you're basically saying it's a failure of the movie to draw this character in such a way that we would believe why he does what he does well or or furthermore even care about him i mean like this has always been my issue with the movie is that i don't I don't particularly like Funes, and yet I feel like I'm forced to view the rest of the film through his lens. The, the scares aside, the the moment the movie loses me is as soon as he departs the neighborhood, and I and I realize, oh God, now I'm just trapped in the car with the, with the character that I don't care about. Like I'd rather hang out with the people who have had their eyes gouged out in the house. Like their stories are interesting. There's nothing interesting about Funes's story. Well, and John, I would point out that I, as I've said in the past, one of the defining characteristics of horror movies in general, but especially the Haunted House film, is isolation. You have to isolate the characters in their space, and that isolation has to be motivated. And we've talked about how in The Shining, they're isolated by the snow, right? In the Amityville Horror, they're isolated by their their finances. In The Conjuring, they're isolated by their finances. There's, there are all these kind of character-driven or narrative things that force the characters to stay in the place where these horrors are happening. The narrative elements that are forcing Funes to stay here is basically his sense of responsibility to make sure that Yano is okay and to tell Albrecht that Janos is not okay. Right. He goes over and he says, my friend is not okay. Yeah. Now he knows he's not like, let's just take him to a hospital. It's a supernatural situation. So his choices there are say, adios muchacho or go to the experts allegedly and see if she can help his friend. He could call her 
Okay, but you, I mean, you're making a big deal out of the idea. He's been in two of the three houses. He has not been attacked up to this point. John, I'm saying that he wants nothing more than to leave, and there needs to be a compelling force that keeps him there. And I do not believe the the compelling force that the film drums up. And I honestly think you're reaching with the character. No, you're saying he should feel he's in mortal jeopardy that by going back into the house to to communicate with Albrecht face-to-face, it's akin to just putting your face in a buzzsaw and any intelligent person would just would just give her a call. And but, I'm saying up to this point he isn't hemophiliac, yes. Up to this point he hasn't actually been directly menaced by anything. I don't I don't quote him walking in and seeing her sitting in a chair in front of a crack in the wall being like I am committing suicide. That just that doesn't that's not how I see it. John, he hasn't been menaced. But fucking Rosentock had knives driven through his hand and had something in a cabinet drinking his blood. And Yano had his eyes gouged out with the shards of glass. No, he should go. He should have left. A reasonable person would have left. And the movie didn't the movie didn't convince me that there was a good reason for him to stay. True. Mm -hmm. Two out of three houses aren't going well. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Well, he does say to her <laughs> when he comes in there, like, uh, "It's not my blood. This is my friend Yano's blood. There's also Rosentock's blood." But, but his argument is because she was telling him it's not real, and he's like, "What do you mean it's not real?" I get all that, but I just you guys, how many fucking movies have you seen with cops being brave? Like, it's just interesting. I know maybe, maybe maybe that's the big flaw of the movie that they're going really out of their way to say that Funes is vulnerable and he has these insecurities and these fears and that's like that destroys what the, the normal the credibility you would give a character being brave like you've seen both of you have not blinked like you've watched a thousand movies where firefighter cop soldier, whatever, the brave guy does things, puts himself in danger. But in this case, in this movie, you're like, no, he should just fucking leave. This isn't brave. This is dumb. He's making poor choices. This is somebody in a Friday the 13th movie wandering into a basement going, hello, Charlie, are you down here? So leave, leave the old lady here. Go retire. Okay. Go, well, go, right. call, go call somebody. Go get somebody who can help. Go do anything except what you do because what you do is utterly ineffectual. I, I don't think of him as like an uber cop, like as, as an exceptional hero who does who makes all the right moves. I guess we agree on that. But I guess for me, I'm more seeing it as people are like that, like real people. They're not all super characters that make all the right decisions. To me, he seems like a real guy. But at the same time, you're saying a real guy would never be this quote-unquote brave or stupid. So I hear you. I hear you. What I'm saying is I've spent, as a, as a horror fan, a lot of time thinking about isolation as a necessary component of horror films. Well, maybe what, are you overthinking that? No. No? No, I'm absolutely not, John. So it's imperative for every horror movie – to make sure that characters have no other options. They have to be trapped. With very few exceptions, yes. Mm-hmm. I, I guess it, unless I, there's a kid or something trapped somewhere that you well, that's, that's a Well, yeah. that's a form of isolation, right? 
that psychological isolation. You don't have a, you don't have any you don't have any other option. You have to do something for this. And I don't find this to be I just don't find this to be compelling. Okay, well, I know you find the water theory compelling, and she says, have you used any tap water tonight, um, tapping into <laughs> the theory that you, you broached earlier that I actually really hadn't thought about that much, but I think clearly the movie is validating this idea that water is, is critical. And I found the explanation worked better when I watched it this time. I've been, I've been critical of that scene in the past, and I actually I actually found it uh, uh, more effective this time. Well, she says something about microscopic beings use water to reproduce, and and the dual dimensions with life on both sides. They agree that we should stop the uh, investigation. Like right before uh, Mora meets her end, she says that we should stop this investigation. But a little too late. She talks about coexisting dimensions and segments of an orange. It's all very interesting. I feel like I just listened to the two of you break each other's spirits. <laughs> <laughs> well, oh, we get a reference to nesting. These beings can gather, nest, and reproduce. Yeah, look, I mean, it's it, it's it's always interesting how Vic and I come at things from a, a different angle. I have my hard absolutes that are sort of inflexible, and I think he does too. And tonight it was more about Vic's absolutes than mine. Yeah, John, it's all about my hard absolutes, buddy. <laughs> Your 10-inch absolute. <laughs> 10 hard absolute. <laughs> no, I, John, look, I, I, I absolutely enjoy having these conversations. And I think that's that's what this podcast is all about, man. You and I are – you and I have both – thought about these things a lot and we come to it with hard and fast truths that we have uh that we have found within this genre and they're not always going to they're not always going to agree but hard I, I, and fast <laughs> yeah but I, I love you as a person even if i disagree with some of your ideas about movies well i mean it's just interesting i think of myself as someone who who really objects to cheap and unmotivated devices and stuff and I'm going to have to analyze why this third act doesn't really bother me, you know, the way it bothers you. I'm not going to say it's like textbook screenwriting or something, but at the same time, like, I just don't fundamentally reject it. Uh, My my interpretation is that you just like the horror of it enough that you're willing to let this thread in the, you know, sort of the figurative sense, like pull you through this. Yeah, I think you're right. Not being bored is a hell of a antidote for other concerns, you know. But but Vic is bored apparently, right? No, well, I would. This is the thing. I do not object in any way to the idea that the horror in these scenes is exceptional. It is, but the character stuff is not. That's the thing that that kind of bums me out about the way that that Yano is, you know, written out of the movie, so to speak, is that his relationship with with Funa is. I think had the most potential of anything in the, in the, the movie. And, you know, he sort of returns again, you know, later, not in any meaningful character development kind of way, but that relationship is the the closest thing we have to a, a, a compelling, like, you know, like a, like a friendship or like something that sort of like connects these two people from different worlds into this similar, uh, or same event. And yet, 
Yano just kind of disappears. Like, like, yes, I, I, you know, I agree. Like you kind of get like the, 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 the foreshadowing of what's going to happen to him and you get to see the aftermath. But I always feel a little cheated that I didn't get anything in between or anything beyond the fact that, that Yano just kind of like discovers him howling in pain and then runs away. It, it feels a little underwritten. You mean uh, Funes discovers Yano howling in pain? Yeah, yeah, sorry. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, and John, I mean, that's what you said, which I think holds true, is that Yano really does feel like kind of a co-lead up to that point. Absolutely. Absolutely. And he, he takes command. I mean, he's certainly a better leader than Funes. And Funes trusts him, and he needs him to do that. So, you know, back to Janet Lee in, in a sense – that like we we think that Yano is going to be a larger, a more important character than he is, and he's sort of abruptly and unceremoniously and perhaps prematurely taken off the stage. And on one level, our cop seems like the logical choice to be the character. We're still watching one oh, you know, one hour and seven minutes into this movie that it's going to be Funes because um, he's you know younger and you know more dynamic on paper and blah 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 but but it was definitely yano who earned a larger role and seemed like the more competent guy but i I don't know that defining those expectations is a bad thing for me i really don't you know like i think they're they're both doing the obvious thing and doing the less obvious thing at the same time if that makes any sense. So I don't, I don't have a big problem with it other than to say that, yeah, I could, I could have used some more Yano too. When you said back to Janet Lee, I thought you were talking about the accordion man for a minute. <laughs> that, that's how closely associated <laughs> with the accordion man Janet Lee really is now. <laughs> no, obviously I meant like sort of the subverting expectations of who we think the main character is going to be, but yes. <laughs> yes. Well, on that note, Final stretch, I'm popping a Miller Lite. <laughs> wow. Dark days in the Evans household. <laughs> hey, they're my friend. I mean, because you can't get a hangover from Miller Lite. It's, it's impossible. Challenge accepted. No, uh, <laughs> see, I always, I always work in the opposite direction. I'm going for a Voodoo Ranger Imperial IPA, a, a formidable 9% IPA. I love, Rich, that I begin the evening with tequila and end with Miller Lite, and you go from white wine to a massive IPA, ABV, you know, I, I just, Yeah, I just, I just feel like the show just, like, wears me down. <laughs> <laughs> it, is, it is a death march. So uh, <laughs> we're in the final mile. <laughs> I'm paused on this incredible shot of this like six foot long arm coming through the crack while Funes rides on the floor in the grips of a heart attack. And this is a new uh, beastie humanoid, but like m- somehow much scarier and more misshapen and dark and twisted than the accordion man. And I think it's a, it's a good upping of the ante. Do you guys agree? Yes. I actually, I, I enjoyed that a lot. Is it now she's been looking at Walter through the crack in the wall, correct? Yeah. We saw Walter while we, we were chatting about other things, but yeah, we, we got a glimpse of Walter with his hair in the crack. 
But that's not the creature that's grabbing her here, right? Oh, hell no. This is another bald creature. It looks quite a bit like uh, the accordion man. It's just more misshapen and disgusting and bloody and it's nastier, much nastier. I know that the mythology of this film is not something you can sort of piece together in a way that's going to that's going to fit in a nice, neat way. But is the suggestion that these microscopic beings that are being transferred through the water are are these things are they something else that they have possessed or is this something that they have composed themselves into in kind of a bizarre freakish attempt at something human they're taking human shape because they have inhabited humans like, yeah like like the alien where it it changes its shape around what it's inhabiting sort of Right, like a an alien in the. Of course, we're talking about like the Ridley Scott inspired series. Like if it's in a bull or a bear or a gorilla, like the the creature is going to resemble that when it pops out. Yeah, exactly. Is it trying to imitate humanity with this again, really horrifying, twisted sort of version of what it thinks a person is? My my interpretation is definitely much more of like the sort of viral variety that, that this idea that if, if you're bleeding, if you are consuming water, that these beings can get inside of you and then sort of overtake or, or possess your body. And then it, it, it transforms into this, this other thing. But I guess that's my question, right? Is so are the the accordion man and maybe the other creature that's under the bed and this thing, are they other people that it has taken over at some point in the past? I would assume so. I mean, because if they're interdimensional beings that are sort of somewhere between microscopic organisms and things that are transmitted by blood and water, and I think, yeah, their, their origin is much more otherworldly and inhuman and it's simply by sort of invading us as hosts that they take a familiar shape over here. I think that's fascinating. I think it's, it's just sort of a question that was rolling around in my head. Visually, both the accordion man and this a, a little bit reminded me of both the pact and yeah, the super tall guy in It Follows. Yeah. Just as an, as an image, there is something really frightening. There's a common thread across, across those three, and they're all really effective imagery in these movies. Whole other conversation that we'll have at a future point in time, but I'll just throw out that generally I'm more afraid of female ghosts and goblins and evil things. Like, just I think there's a deeper bench with that. But of these archetypes that with male antagonists that freak me out, I would say that this movie definitely accesses them. So That's interesting. I didn't think about the fact that they're exclusively male. Yeah, this is this movie does not tap into any witch imagery or, or something along those lines. I would say that's somewhat different in the haunted house genre. It is a bit. I mean it's always like a you know, there's always Toby. Toby's presumably a man, unless it's Toby with an eye. I don't know, I guess that was never really made Fully clear. I don't think the invisible friends gender is usually that specific. It is interesting that you're right. They have sort of an androgynous name a lot of the time. What was the other one? There was Toby and we were joking how similar (laughs) the two names were. Jody. (laughs) Yes. Exactly. Thank you, Vic. Like both of those are uh, unisex names. 
there's something about the masculinity here that I feel like differentiates it from the Asian haunted house films that we talked about, which were, I think, sort of exclusively female. And even if you if you extended stuff like The Ring and The Grudge, even The Eye and some of the Thai films and stuff like those are those are almost all women. So this is sort of interesting. You're right, John. You don't get a lot of male figures in in these movies. But they've put their finger on some just instantly you have to take it serious, very chilling male forms. Uh, Like they just nail the design. But speaking of that, like one of these, this even more menacing creature apparently just climbs over Funyas and leaves him alone. Oh my Uh, God. This, this is like a, a, this is a a huge pet peeve for me. We talked about this earlier when the, when we were talking about Walter and, his initial encounter there, the only initial encounter that we see with the bald man where it's hovering over the sheet and the next day he's fine. And like, I feel like this is really the full realization of that type of storytelling is that why have these creatures uh, attacked every other person that have, have come in their path so far that we've seen. And yet for some reason with, with, with Funes, the creatures just crawling towards him. You kind of get this relatively cool technique where the camera is, is kind of panning from side to side, showing you that from one angle you can't see the creature, and from another angle you can see the creature. And that's kind of cool, even though it doesn't really seem to amount to much in, in this moment. But then he's just he's just gone. Like it seems like like Funus is like a goner, and then he's just he's, he's not. The creature's this, gone. This is one of the only things that I'll agree. If 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 both of you guys were saying like this is a significant weak point, yeah, I can't argue whatsoever. I think it's it's like hero armor, even though, like again, this guy's not a fucking hero in any conventional sense of the protagonist. He just seems to get a pass. Is this another send more paramedics moment? Because Funes leaves, and then the more cops show up to try and find him. And is that perhaps the goal of this? We're going to get to that shortly, but that I believe the cop that seems like he's doomed, and Funes really tries to save him, we see him at the very end. So he doesn't actually get killed. I don't think any any further victims uh, succumb beyond this well, point. No, but, but, right. but is that is that the motivation behind the thing leaving? Him? Right. I don't know. I don't know. I just if I if I was going to try and explain it that would be my explanation. But it's not because we don't have any sense for their motivation. Um, we, we really don't have an answer to it. To me, that's doing much bigger backflips than trying to justify Funya's being in the house at all. Like, I think that's even more sort of giving the movie more credit. Again, with this overly Machiavellian scheming that the evil is just like 30 chess moves ahead of everybody else. I have a harder time with that than Funya's being this combination of bravery and cowardice. It's a weak point. Alicia shows up at the window, and Funyas is recovering from his heart attack. And this creature is like it's been up above him on the counters. It's been crawling around him. Now it's sort of walking towards him. And, I mean, it is just not interested in attacking him. We have to do backflips to justify why it would snap Albrecht's neck without a single hesitation and just sort of toy with Funyas. 
this is it, right? This is like, this is the heart attack that they put on the mantle in Act One. Here's like the big, like, heart attack that we've had to listen to him, like, on and on about. I mean, you, your theory that it's supposed to be comedic relief, I'm willing to, to buy that. I don't, I didn't find it especially funny as much as I found it a little annoying, but maybe that was the intention was for that to be like a kind of a running gag. I think so. I mean, I think there's something goofy about this character. Would you, would you give me that? Yeah, he's definitely like he's. They're they're certainly like willing to to play him for for laughs like a, a a little bit dry and slight, but but yeah. After all the hyping up of like his like health issues, it was like oh this is gonna be like a major like pivotal plot point. But it kind of just comes and and happens and passes and and even the even the thing with his hearing aid, like I don't know what we're meant to get out of that. I believe when the creature comes out of the wall or, or shortly before that, he gets like a high pitched like whining in his hearing aid. Is that here? Yeah, yeah, it's, it's uh, his hearing aid uh, fell out, and it, it definitely seemed like there was something going on with like a extreme uh, activation of it so then i was like well is, is there something about the fact that he loses his hearing aid is like is that what keeps him safe in a sense like i, I don't know i just hmm. couldn't piece together what there's all these like little elements where it seems like this is really where everything comes together for what we know about funes and yet it doesn't seem to add up to anything like, I think that would be genius, and I'm not sure that they pull it off, but, like, if they were actually saying that it is somehow quasi-scientifically that his hearing aid is what protects him, I would be receptive to that if, if you could sell that. That's an interesting point, John. I hadn't really considered it from that point. I mean, because what you don't want them to do is a quiet place, right? Like, where the, the, the hearing aid becomes the conduit that... that they wind up using to repel the creatures or something. And so it's like, they don't want to give you that much information and they don't want to make it that kind of deus ex machina. But why else does he have a hearing aid? I mean, I think that it would help a lot address the yeah. questions that we're raising about why they just mysteriously spare him. I think yeah. that that could be a, a, a decent explanation. Agreed. We get the first real conversation between Alicia and Funes here. And I find it interesting that he pulls his gun on her, his ex and potentially the mother of his child, as we discussed. But he doesn't actually shoot her, so that's good. (laughs) 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 But, you know, he's kind of saying, I did it for you as far as, like, you know, putting the cement on, on her son's grave. And she's obviously not in her right mind. But, uh, you know, they do kind of connect here. Finally, we get some payoff to their sort of relationship. And he's begging her to take him to a hospital. And she evidently acquiesces. What do you think of her performance? It's fine. It's pretty minimal. I think I get the feeling they didn't want to ask her to do too much. Perhaps, yeah. I don't know. There's like an off-putting quality I find about her. Again, a lack of anything compelling. You put these two characters in a, in a room, and I just, like... I, I, I get the feeling she's a limited actress. Like, uh, I mean, at least that's the impression, that it's sort of a blank slate kind of performance. Yeah. I still come back to the, just narratively, okay, so she's going to she's gonna take him to the hospital, and then he goes out there, and she's got the dead kid in there. How did she get the kid out if the concrete was in there? Did the concrete not dry? Like, what was the... Well, she's filthy again. And this is supposed to be weeks later, so I assume that she dug under it or to the side or whatever. But she, this time, she went and she she did in fact dig up the her, her, the the corpse this time. 
what did the concrete do? It came back on his own. Yeah, that was the idea. Was just to keep well, the no, kid. But how, how did she get through the concrete? Well, she's smarter than the kid potentially. <laughs> have like a jackhammer. I was willing to wave that one away just because I, I did genuinely like. I wouldn't call it like a, a shocking twist, but I do really love the realization when they go out to the car and and he sees the kid in the bed. Like like uh, like okay, she like concedes to like take him to the hospital, only to reveal that the kid's in the back of the car. I love yeah. it. Yeah, I totally I agree. agree. I agree. That's great. But my problem with it narratively is that then he doesn't get in the car and she leaves. And so now you, you've jumped through all these like narrative hoops and he's just outside. Like he would have been if she'd never shown up in the first place. And he has access to a car. Yeah. Well, he didn't want to drive cause he was in a bad way. That was the idea. Well, yeah, he's, got a, he's got a condition. Yeah. <laughs> well, he, 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 you know, he just had a heart attack. But now we have, like, talk about highlights in this portion of the movie. We have the Albrecht body rushing. Uh-huh. This this is actually shot, Rich, just the way the car crash scenes normally are, where we're looking through the driver's side window over the, the wheel and past the driver and just seeing through this uh, window her body, which reminds me of Sideways, actually, where the naked guy comes running out after ah. <laughs> he's in his car fleeing, having fucked this guy's wife, and the guy, the naked guy, dick flapping, just suddenly starts running towards the driver's side window. Well, that's basically the same setup here, except this woman, she's completely bent around backwards so her head is flailing around at her midsection backwards as she runs towards him it's incredibly disturbing it's just it's a 10 for me it's a 10 yeah it's an amazing shot i absolutely agree john i for whatever my character driven concerns are with how this plays out the horror part of it is aces, and this is maybe the apex of it. This is a great shot and an absolutely terrifying scene. Yeah, well, yeah or face upside down. I mean, you, you, you bring up the, the car crash shot. You are right that it is the same framing, but the, the central difference it has from the car crash shot is that the, the car crash shot gets its strength from the fact that you're watching something benign like trees pass by and then only to enter an intersection and discover that the truck is right on top of you. Mm-hmm. This thing's strength is that it's not moving and that you see the creature coming at you for, I, I don't know what it really is in, in playtime, but it feels like a good like 20 seconds that you see it approaching before it ever reaches you and you realize what's going on. I think so it's you, like two seconds, but yeah, that, the impact is like that. Yeah, you're right. Yeah, like you, you, you get you get enough time to like really like sort of register that like something is coming. You've seen enough horrific shit so far to know that it's going to be bad, and then somehow when it shows up, it's still worse. Yeah, it's great. I wouldn't say it's it slow plays it. Like you could do it in twenty seconds, and it would be vastly vastly different. It still plays like a car crash, but it but it's interesting that it's a static shot at the beginning of it. And, and she just comes running at him. There's a very similar scene in John Carpenter's In the Mouth of Madness, which is one of my favorite movies, although it, it's gotten a little worse as I've gotten older. Yeah. But one of the scenes that always bugged me from the first time I saw it in the fucking movie theater was a scene where Julie Carmen is coming out in like a crab walk with her head twisted around, and it just looks 
weird. It looks fake. It doesn't work. And this is that same image, but played in a way that works. And it's, it's a hell of a thing. If you can take a scary image from a John Carpenter movie and do it better, then you, you, you really got my attention. I like the fact that Albrecht has been the, the rock solid, unflappable observer of this, of this phenomenon through a whole movie. Like, like Yano is always like a little excited. Like Rosenstock is, is way, way excited. And Albrecht has been a very like sober presence the entire time. And here we finally see her reincarnated as this screaming, flailing monster who's in pain. In, in this case, I'd say it's a good indicator of like using character to sort of flip the script and tell us that this thing has reached its, you know, it's, it's full, like, you know, tilt. Yeah. I legit rewound this and watched it about three times to try and take in exactly how much was playing in the background and, and why it was so effective. It's worth noting her, she has dialogue. She says, yeah. you still have time. You have to save us. We're being tortured. He does not have time. And he can't save us. Yeah, what, so what, what do you make of that? I, I feel like there is this window where it's like Walter has been captured by the creature but has not been fully turned. Like, is that what they're talking about? Is that where Albrecht is at this moment? Is that she is still herself in a sense, but she's now under the grip of this, of this creature. I don't think that's a random thing. I mean, I think there's some meaning and intentionality to giving her that line in the sense that both Yano and Albrecht do retain, even in this form, a percentage of their old selves. And I think if, if, if too much time passes, they will just be completely tools of whatever has invaded them or taken them over. But I think that for now, like they're basically still echoes of themselves and she's, she's sending the message to him that there's still hope for some salvation. And I don't think it's enough of a clue to give him much of a plan. And I think what he ends up doing probably fails, but it's an interesting idea that she's calling him to action there. And then we go from that to like a very slow, like the movie really takes a breath here, which I think totally works. But now we're like very clearly deep into act three, but we, we hit the pause button and we spend, you talk about 20 seconds, Rich. I mean like, no, this really is 20 seconds or 30 where we're just like watching Funes recovering in his car with the bloody handprints that Albrecht left on his window. And he's just sitting out here like a few miles away probably out of danger, out of the, the reach of this thing. And then he picks up his walkie-talkie. He can't resist. He answers the the call, and this, his fellow cop, who we've seen here and there, is saying, your friend came here to the police station, the kid's mom. She was looking for you like crazy. This guy told her where Funes was, couldn't stop her. She went there. Now he's in the neighborhood, and I guess the mayor was involved, <laughs> which is funny. But Funes is activated by hearing that that his subordinate is there at the house looking for him and obviously in mortal danger. En Enrique, do you copy? Get out of there, <laughs> which is a classic horror movie beat. 
and the guy doesn't quite get it, and you think this guy is toast. It's a nice little suspense moment. It's not like you're invested in the guy on the other end of the walkie-talkie. Like, do you really care if anything terrible? If anything, like, I'd maybe like for something to happen to that guy. Uh, <laughs> a little disappointing when when nothing does. We know what's going to happen to this guy. And so you understand the urgency with which Funes is trying to get him out. I mean, it reminds me of Ripley and aliens trying to get the people. Come on, get your guys out of there. Get your guys out of there because they don't understand what they're what they're in for. There, there's something to that from just from a storytelling perspective where we know what Funes is trying to communicate but the guy on the other end doesn't, and there's just no way he can get that through a radio. Yeah, um, how, how do you not feel suspense in that situation? Like, exactly. you don't have to be emotionally attached to the character. His dialogue, I order you to get out, feels that really has some oomph behind it. So I actually like this scene a lot. Good, God damn it! Yeah, it works for me. It totally does. It's just a dramatic situation. Knowing the horrors of that neighborhood, you don't need to know this guy from Adam. It, wouldn't it be nice to get some small win and have somebody survive and get out of there? I guess. Although you just got that with Funes, but uh, okay, fine. I'm yeah, not going to... You, not, hate, you not, hate him. But, I mean, I, but I, you're talking about things not mattering. I mean, not you, Rich, specifically. It was more Vic, but, you know, just like plot or scenes that have no no stakes or, you know, what, what's the character you're even trying to accomplish? Well, this one's clear. You know, he has the opportunity to maybe save this guy, and I just think that has a natural suspense to it. Unless you're a sociopath, some part of you kind of hopes that maybe we can get a win here and this guy gets out of there. But yeah, it's just a weird, like, pause. And he, Funes is looking at his his cigarette burning all the way, this huge ash on it, and he just suddenly, that gives him the idea, which makes sense, fire. And he backs on out of there, and now he's activated, and he's going to He's going to be a traditional hero for a second because he's going to take action. And that's what we want. God damn it. He's going to do take something. Out trash. <laughs> I want to throw out a quick aside because I did the research earlier and I, I missed my timing in terms of bringing this up. But it, it's still relevant because we're on, we're on Funes and his, uh, his third act triumph here, which is that they did make an interesting choice of – of his ailment is the fact that he's a hemophiliac who suffers from a heart attack, which is typically a, a blockage caused by your blood. Oh, so like a, a coagulant, meaning, yes. Yeah, yeah, yes, essentially. So I, I was actually like researching this earlier in our discussion, and uh, it is it is in fact possible for hemophiliacs to have heart attacks, but it is extremely rare because they are actually born with a condition that is making them less likely to have heart attacks. Did we get for sure that his problem was it didn't coagulate or did it overcoagulate? I'm not 100% sure on uh, that. He definitely says that it doesn't coagulate. Yeah. Okay. Another layer to the amazing <laughs> physical ailments that this guy faces. <laughs> yeah. Again, not a doctor, but I know that a lot of our listeners, they come here for the, the medical insight. They do. Uh, a lot of doctors who listen to this, actually, is, is what I understand. Yeah, that's what I've heard. Yeah. Yep, nothing after nothing makes you feel better after a long day in the COVID ward than listening to the March Mad Men podcast. <laughs> your your seven-hour commute home. <laughs> <laughs> 
God. So he returns to the neighborhood. Now he's got a purpose and he's got jerry cans full of gas. And he's, this is a pretty obvious, like you don't need a lot of mythology and the movie does not give you any mythology to suggest that burning down the houses will fix anything. But you just kind of intuitively on some horror movie level think, oh, sure. Yeah, he's going to burn down the houses, right? I mean, doesn't that kind of just make sense? This is almost exactly the same way that The Grudge ends. Juwan, not mm-hmm. the American remake, is with a, a police officer character who is kind of the last one left who understands what's happening in this house. Goes and get a, get, gets a can of gas and starts spreading it around the house because he knows that he's the only one who can put an end to this by burning it down. It's too bad because of the way we structured the podcast. I'd love to look at these those two movies side by side because I feel like they have a ton in common. You mean this and Juwan? Correct. Mm-hmm. Sometimes I think about like what we should do next, and it did cross my mind that like going right to roaming ghosts, even though it would be torture for us in the sense that like we could use a palate cleanser or something totally different, but like that really would be the most logical thing because it's adjacent to this and where our heads are in this and it's all still fresh and the intersections and divergences would be, would be really obvious. It's basically the same playbook. It's just slightly different. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. I'm with you that it would be torture. Yeah, I think so. (laughs) Honestly, I'm not, I'm not going to go for that, but (laughs) yeah, it would be continuing the immersion that we were in. And I just want to be clear, that's not a knock, right? Yeah, like, no. I'm not like, oh, he's, he's, this is all just a copy of something else. I think this guy has a, a, a very clear understanding of the genre, and he's pulling good things from other movies, but he does it really well. So it's not it's, it's not like a, a strike against the film. Damien Rugna. Funyas is, you know, doing, again, this is somewhat of a standard trope. He's shaking out the gasoline everywhere, but then he well, finds... I'm sorry, but but before you give that reveal, I I just want to say that while the payoff, I think, is is somewhat lacking, I do love the shot where he enters the house and before he starts in on on the gas pouring, you can clearly see that there is a body looming in the background behind him that we never focus on enough to actually understand like what. And then when he moves away from it, you almost get the feeling that you're not going to find out what it was. Oh, meaning uh, Alicia hanging? Yeah, I, I think it's a very like it's a it's a very patient uh, choice to to show it the way that he does and and to wait as long as he does to to reveal it. Yeah, the audience can notice that, and I did just watching it right here while we're talking. But the movie doesn't deal with it for a while, which is yeah, you're right. That's that's a really worthy thing to point out. That it's, and, it's just cool. And the woman hanging is one of the few traditional haunted house tropes that we get in this movie. That's right. That's right. I would say that, yeah, someone hanging is one of the most reliable tropes in our whole tournament. So he opens this door, the little boy's bedroom door, and it has the creepy handprint around the door handle that indicates the dead boy's hand was here. There's some, like, bunny action going on in the background. What is is that? the bunny. It's got, like, uh, he's chewing on one of those paper towel rolls. (laughs) He always wants to be a part of the pod, if he can be. Who can blame him? 
It's going to shoot him right to superstardom. Maybe he's done. No. <laughs> I feel bad taking it away from him. I do. I love how powerless you seem over the bunny. I can't do anything with a bunny. He can't go anywhere. He's like he's in his little hutch. What is the bunny's name? Ellie. I would have to open like a cage door and reach in. And he might have another one. So I might have to like search the entire enclosure. God damn it. Alright, I'm gonna I'm gonna just take a look. Because he's not letting up. Hold on. Okay. So yeah, Funes opens this door to his we don't know if it's his kid or just Alicia's kid, but the kid's bedroom. And suddenly we get this shot, like, there is the the corpse kid, right there. And Funyas reacts and jumps back and lets go of the door. It's a holy shit kind of a moment. And then he just, like, starts pouring the gas all over the door. Yeah, his reaction just, I laugh out loud every time I see that. (laughs) And then he sees the hanging body in the other room, which is his ex. It's kind of interesting to think, like, how she got to the point, talking about missing scenes or what was skipped over. We've seen her clinging to this idea that the kid is still, if not alive, a presence. So how did she get to the point where she's like, you know what, I'm going to leave the kid in the bedroom and I'm going to fucking kill myself? (laughs) Like, you, you wonder, was it a moment of sanity or lucidity, or did something horrible happen where the kid, you know, just really proved to be not what she thought he was. Her character just isn't very well thought out. I know I mentioned this earlier, but like coming back to like Mungo as a study of how mothers and families deal with loss and that sort of thing, this just doesn't track in a way that that it does in that film. Now that film is focused on it. This film is not focused on it. But I still think that her character, she really just functions to do whatever the story needs her to do to be scariest or but okay but d- you don't buy that there's an assault on her sanity that is pretty fucking massive through this entire thing i do but i can't a little different from lake mungo i can't track what happens between her leaving with the kid in the back and her coming back and hanging herself we all have discussed with this movie that there are scenes that happen between scenes, things that we don't see. I more think of it, oh, this is not a huge plot hole or something. I more think, I'm just curious, how did this character get to this? But at the same time, she's been a fucking maniac, understandably, since her kid returned from the grave. It's not a huge jump, but I'm just, I am curious, like, how did she go from sort of buying into this fantasy to being like, oh, no, actually, this is horrible, and I give up. But that's not, like, completely out of character or un, un, unimaginable that she would kill herself. No, I, I agree with that 100%. It's just, it's, she does, like I said, she does what the plot sort of needs her to do, or either the plot or, again, I think in this instance, it's just what's something scary, what's something unsettling yeah. that we can put in the background and it works like from that perspective like rich talked about it totally works it's unsettling the image of people hanging is really scary it's it's unsettling so it yeah. works i brought this up you know an hour or two hours ago as we talked about this movie that i i really do think this movie is sort of a a string of 
cool scenes that are loosely connected by a, a narrative more than the filmmaker and screenwriter Damien Rugna is like really obsessed with working out ideas or themes or providing psychological insights. I, I think, yeah, this movie is basically trying to be terrifying and he knows that it will all have a lot more power if there's some psychological and emotional resonance, but that stuff is secondary, not primary. Is it intriguing? Am I, am I curious about what happened? Yes, but I also don't feel like we were given quite enough to work with. There's a lot of scenes that we've discussed where they gave you just enough to work with to keep your interest level and engagement while they, they skipped around and, and missed a few steps. This is not one of those cases. This is a case where I feel like they just didn't give you enough to really sink your teeth into any kind of fan fiction that you might be writing in your head as you watch the movie. I think this movie, like, there's a possibility that the perfect version of this movie, like, if it pleased everyone, if it had everything and every base was covered and we actually had the psychological and emotional resonance of a Lake Mungo and the terror and the scares, this would be the greatest horror film of all time. It would be. The fact that it isn't that is, you know, a mild disappointment, but... But my God, like you would be clicking on every cylinder imaginable if you were able to pull that off. Because as a as a roller coaster, as a haunted house, and I mean that in the sense of like you and your friends go through a haunted house and are terrified at every turn of the maze for fun, like that kind of haunted house. This movie has that, and it yeah, it's lacking in some of the deeper levels and. We're talking about, you know, psychology and depth and a movie that could be a great drama, even if you didn't have ghosts and, and stuff, as Mike would always talk about on our show. You already have a dramatic movie before you bring the supernatural element. Yeah, I think if it covered all of those bases, this would be the greatest horror film of all time. Doesn't quite get there. No, this this has touches to me. Uh, for some reason, the, the movie that's coming to mind is is following the, the the first Christopher Nolan movie, or maybe even to some extent like Pie, like the the Darren Aronofsky film. Although that's maybe a better film. But anyways, that idea of like the film where part of what is so exciting about it is not even just the film itself, but the promise of this new voice and if this is what they can do with a, a sort of small and, and limited budget and, and set of ideas, like what could they, could they go on to do? And so I, I feel like this movie has a touch of that. And I don't believe this is his, is his first feature. Is that correct? I think we talked about that earlier at some point. I'm like not this aware guy's... of any previous movies myself. No. Okay. So, uh, all right. So I, I'd have to back check on that, but it, it still has the feeling of like, this is something big enough that it's launching this guy into bigger places. And if he can take the, the lessons learned from this and build on that and at the same time retain that scare factor or, you know, to, to really like bring it home to this movie, um, something like Kronos, you know, where it's like there's, there's obviously like a lot of vision and ideas, but like they're still not quite gelling 100% yet. As a first film, I would say this is probably one of the, if it is, in fact, his first film, this would be one of the most impressive debuts ever. Like, it's up there with Evil Dead or something. 
And it, yeah, if this is like 30% or 50% of what the guy is capable of, wow, look out. I was really hoping that Vic was back there Googling uh, this guy's uh, filmography, but I guess not. I was not. I'm sorry. I'm pretty sure this is his first film. I just wanted to mention it out loud because I wanted you to feel my disappointment, Vic. Good. (laughs) I hope we all noted that the bunny found another wall somewhere in that building. um, Yeah. And is doing exactly the same thing. Is this this what happens every time you get through like a roll of paper towels or, or toilet paper it just gets tossed into the bunny den? Apparently there's dozens of them in there. And me withdrawing several was not enough. And he's obsessed with doing this right now. So I'm going to have to reach in there again so we can do the last uh, seven minutes of this movie. Yeah. Jesus Christ. Rich, I, I was just going to say that I'm... I'm glad you were able to, to fully express your disappointment in me because I, I haven't had time to talk to my father this week. <laughs> no. I'm really delighted that, that John is the one who's had to interrupt the podcast a bunch of times today. Yeah, he, he has, actually. I feel like that's usually me. Holy shit. Now the bunny is just chewing the side of the building. <laughs> it's the nice little lepus, John. Get out of there! Yeah, exactly. He's going to be chewing my carotid artery before the night yeah. is done. After Funes runs back out, he's he's poured all of his gasoline and he's confronted outside the house by Yano, the corpse-like figure with his bloody eyes, and then. He fires his gun, and I paused it in an amazing still frame with the flames leaping out from his gun as he closes his eyes as he pulls the trigger, which is never advisable if you want to actually hit something. We see it ignites the flames, and now the fire is spreading, and Yano just sort of slowly, eyelessly turns his head to witness the conflagration and we see him turn his head back towards Funes and pictures that the boy apparently drew of, I guess, himself and his mother start to burn. And you see the flames start to lick everything. And then that's the end of that. We cut away. We don't see what happens to Funes. We're back to Juan. He's in his institution still, but... We're going to find out quickly that it's months or years later. There's a new trio of characters here to interview Juan. Familiar scenario, different people because we know what happened to the first three. One of these guys is the cop that survived through this whole movie that was on the radio with Funes that we've seen a couple of times in passing. So that's the only one of these characters that we'll recognize. The other two apparently are more doctors. There's sort of a sameness to this, and Juan is pretty shell-shocked. We don't know yet why these guys are here, but there's some formal talk, and what the date and the time and all that is being recorded, and Juan's got a snappy little robe on, and they show pictures of the three people that visited him last year. And, of course, it's... Rosenstock, Albrecht, and Yano. He says, I recognize them. Don't remember their names. The investigator asks him, do you remember what they asked you, what they talked about? And he says, they came to help me. Because they had proof of why my wife had disappeared. 
which is interesting. Disappeared. Okay. So the body yeah. disappeared. Hmm. What else? The guy says. Well, they made me sign some papers. Your authorization. What else? The guy's like not happy with these answers. Juan is giving. He says, well, I was under the effect of drugs. I don't remember. He says, did you know Deputy Funes? And uh, he's like, yes. That's the definitive answer. He's a policeman. He was my neighbor's partner. The other cop says, well, when was the last time you saw him? He says, well, I saw him the day that Alicia's son was buried. And now we get a shot where you can see the empty space behind everyone, like the towards the doorway and everything. And there's already starting to be some suspense. Why are you framing it this way? Why are you showing us the, the back of this room? They say, is there anything else about Deputy Funes that you'd like to tell us? Well, he told me he was about to retire. He had a health problem. <laughs> pretty funny we didn't Good speak about everybody <laughs> yeah he, he, he was vocal about that officer guzman i guess is the name of this other cop and the guy the investigator says well you witnessed how funias set your house and others on fire there are people inside he's a fugitive so now we know that funias is and now he's a missing person he did not get away clean so that's kind of a gut punch if you gave a shit but I know some of us don't. Yeah, fuck Bunez. <laughs> That's a new t-shirt you can get on our website. <laughs> so we're okay rocking fuck Bunez's t-shirt. Yeah. Here's a, here's a quick question. Mm-hmm. If his wife disappeared, could she be the other body under the bed with the accordion man? Well, it looked very male and had stubbling of hair on its skull. So, okay. no, I didn't so, read uh, Clara when I looked at the corpse or whatever it was. Yeah. That's right. Fuck you, John. It's fine. <laughs> nice try, though, Vic. Yeah. Then suddenly Juan points his finger, interrupting the guy, and he says, and, and, and this is great, coming out of nowhere. He's just pointing, did he come with you? Pointing into that negative space that we already established. And then we cut to it, and yeah, the audience can't see anything. The investigators, cops, can't see anything. Juan Blumetti slides the picture of Rosenstock, as Rich was talking about earlier, towards them and says, this is maybe the guy that's in the room that they can't see. And they say, oh, Rosenstock. Yes. He doesn't look like that. His, his face is burnt, which is creepy as fuck. Yes. And then the chair starts to move across the room. It starts to slide. Juan's like sort of bracing himself for it. He came with you, he says. I do think it's interesting that he's, he says it so definitively. Like yeah. it's, a, it's not, not a question. It's a, it's a statement. Juan might have lost his grip on his sanity, but he seems to be at some kind of peace with it. Like he, it's given him some kind of authority. And then, yeah, the sudden final shot of the movie is this chair flying towards the audience and overwhelming the camera's perspective. Hard cut to credits. Oh, it's the worst. (laughs) I think it works here. I think it works. I'm going to throw this out there. Number one, I really like this scene. It works like it. I don't know. There's a lot of tension in it in spite of the fact that we should be in this tensionless scene. When he points and says, did he come with you? It's deeply unsettling. And I believe it's either right before or right after that. And John, if you want to back it up and look at this, there's a weird movement behind Juan. Guys, there's there's at least three spots in this movie that I rewound and watched 
three times trying to decipher what was happening in the, in the background of the of the scene, and this was one of them. It's not anything definitive, but I felt like there was something going on in the background with Juan uh, uh, right before we get that revelation about the the chair right after. Oh, I, I saw like a flash kind of. Right? I thought that might have been the peripheral vision of the guy that's sitting to his on his side. It's behind Juan. Yeah, no, I know, but yeah, like okay. you, you see something move at the periphery of the shot. It just looks like the guy in the foreground, like one of the. We're so, almost like a over-the-shoulder shot at Juan of one of the three dudes in the room. That's what I'm seeing, but I watched it multiple times before I wrote it down because I wanted to be sure that there was actually something there. So I certainly could be wrong, but I it was. It seemed to fit with this pattern of. Rugna uses the background of the shots very effectively, as we already pointed out, setting up the negative space where the chair's going to be. And I just felt like in that scene, I was like, holy shit, there's something back there. It did just play into that feeling in this scene that it's a bunch of people sitting around in an empty room talking, and yet there's a heavy tension over it. And I really like both. I liked both the bookends. Of this, the scenes with with Juan. I suppose it's not technically a bookend because it, uh, of where it happens, but pretty much. I like the bookends. I think they really work in this movie, and I really like the way the scene played. I agree. The chair is not like the perfect out, but I liked uh, John. You sent us an article of, with an interview with the writer director who pointed out that in making a sequel, what he really wants to do is pick up immediately after this. Whatever my feelings about the chair are will be mitigated by where the sequel picks up and how it deals. Is it sheer genius? But does no. But does it remind you the movie you just watched and send you out like assuming you're in a theater or you know with a group of people like that this was a balls to the wall grab you by the throat kind of a movie? I, I think it's a fitting ending. Come on, man. What did you want, Rich? I'm sorry. I th- I've t- oh well, for one, like there could be something that you could play with where it's like you get a, like a, a glimpse of a creature and then and then cut to another angle through the the window of the hospital but there's nothing there as you see like something happen to people i mean like I, I feel like you could do something that's a little better than throwing a digital chair at the camera using this sort of conventions that the movie had established earlier like the rules to do something a little more clever and distinctive to this movie instead of somewhat a somewhat generic ending yeah. Mm-hmm. I mean, that, that, that would be my suggestion, just so I'm not just complaining about it. But there's there's something about the the cadence and the, and the visual language of it that is so evocative of, like, late 90s horror movies that every time I see it, I'm, I'm expecting, like, a, you know, a, a Limp Biscuit knockoff fan to, like, start right. playing the chair hit the screen. Right. Uh, it feels like a, a cliche in a movie that, that somehow managed to avoid any true cliches throughout its runtime. Something like um, cut to the puddle of mud song. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I was gonna say, Rich, isn't Limp Biscuit a Limp Biscuit knockoff band? No man, they're still uh there's they're, I guess they're still doing well. Fred Durst is out there directing movies. That's true. Yeah, he's definitely enjoying it, a second life. Who would have thought? But who would have thought we'd made it through this whole movie in less than six hours? Guys, I'm not even this is a we're at the end of this. I literally have a story about Fred Durst directing a movie at a company that I was with and met him multiple times. I'm not even going to share it. It's time to wrap this up. Let's just yep. let's just move on. 
Let's save it for the Fred Durst podcast. To say we've run long is an understatement, but it's been a pleasure, and I think this movie certainly was worthy of a truly loving autopsy, and I think that's exactly what we gave it. So for Rich Eckersley and Vic Wheat, I am John Evans. Thank you so much for listening. We'll talk to you soon. Adios. Thanks, everyone. Good night. Yeah, everybody go get some sleep, for fuck's sake. (laughs) 